Hello and welcome to In the Interest of National Security. I'm Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Professor Jonathan Rudd, Associate Director of the Center. Our guest today is Rachel Hutchings, Deputy Director of the Center for National Security Studies here at Utah Valley University. Prior to joining the National Security Studies program, Rachel lived in Tokyo, Japan, where she worked for the Japan Energy Law Institute. Before Japan, she worked as a law clerk in the Chancery Court of Shelby County, Tennessee, and was a member of the Leo Berman Senior American Inn of Court. Rachel holds a JD from the University of Memphis, Humphrey School of Law, and a BA in French from Brigham Young University. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast, Rachel. As you are aware, many of our listeners are interested in pursuing careers in national security, and I'm constantly informing students that there is not one specific path, but many potential options. Uh, You have quite a unique background. Can you talk a little bit about your educational and career path? Yeah, uh, it was kind of meandering. I think part of what I've learned throughout the whole process is being willing to pivot. I, when I decided to go to law school, I figured it didn't really matter what my undergrad was in. So I went with something I loved, uh, which was French. So then I went on to law school and kind of saw it as something I would have to survive, right? I mean, you hear a lot of horror stories about late nights and scary professors, mm-hmm. but I loved it. I would do it again. It was an amazing experience and it really opens up the world in a lot of ways, whether or not you want to be an attorney. Just as I was graduating, uh, my husband got an offer to move to Japan um, for a period of years, and we love it there, so we jumped on that chance. And when we got there, I found out about uh, a job opening at the Japan Energy Law Institute and applied and was hired. And that was a really interesting experience. It's kind of a pseudo-government institute where the Japanese government helps fund it, but then otherwise is hands-off. Very, very interested in the research that happens there, and it's something the Japanese people are passionate about, um, primarily focusing on nuclear energy at that time. when It was the large majority of the energy production uh, for the power grid. So you can imagine they have some opinions about all things nuclear. So we worked on researching uh, policy and regulations, both domestically and internationally, and then presenting those findings at conferences. So that's kind of how I got there, very randomly and accidentally in a lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) So all three of us are lawyers, for better or worse, um, and went through law school. You just talked about how much you enjoyed law school and that you would do it again. Would you recommend law school for students that are interested in national security? I would. I think. It provides an incredible next step after our program. They really kind of break you down in a positive way. They take what you think you know and kind of throw it out the window and build a new foundation, really teaching you how to go out, research, take the information that you find, synthesize it, really dig into the analytical side of things, and then write. Um, Also, be able to stand on your feet and answer questions and try to examine multiple sides of the issue. So when you go in, you have a better base of understanding of where others are coming from as well. If students aren't really interested in practicing law, would you still recommend law school as a step for students that are interested in a career in national security? Absolutely. I wasn't necessarily interested in being an attorney. My dad's an attorney, and he's primarily primarily the reason that I went 
And the way he convinced me was talking about how it opens doors. And he knows many individuals, and I do as well now, that went to law school and have never practiced law a day in their life. But that background in really solid research, writing, analytical thinking can get you a job in a lot of different industries. It's a very, very valuable degree. And when it comes to national security, those skills are critical in a lot of different jobs. I guess all three of us, too, have had had non-traditional jobs out of law school as well. And so it's kind of an illustration of that point. Yeah, and the same thing for my, I remember when I was debating, you know, what to do for education and whatnot, that was one of my father's. My father's an attorney as well, but his admission to me was, look, law school is one of the best degrees you can get, one of the best educations you can get, because uh, there's so many options available to you. So I would agree with you. Um, you recently joined the center as its deputy director. Uh, can you explain what drew you to the program and kind of your role as the deputy director? Well, Ryan initially drew me in to develop a course for the program covering nuclear issues, and that was a blast. I really enjoyed doing that. And a couple of months into teaching, you know, I rapidly began to see the wisdom in the program. And Ryan is very convincing. He has a very clear vision of why we need this program. And it's very obvious. It's almost impossible not to catch that vision. And so when he approached me about taking over the deputy director role, it was kind of a no-brainer. I wanted to be involved in getting to build the program and watching the influence it has in our students' lives. So you talked about your, your time in Japan you worked on legal issues related to energy, including nuclear energy. What well, can you tell us about your time there and some of the issues that you dealt with? It was very unique. Just from a workplace standpoint, I was the only woman who was not a secretary. And I was the only foreigner who worked there. Uh, Japanese workplace environments are very different from American workplace uh, cultures. So... Thankfully, I was already familiar with some of that. I had lived in Japan before, but I was always navigating uncertain waters. They were very, very good to me, but I always felt like I had to be hyper aware. Uh, that being said, I worked with some brilliant minds and we really geeked out together. And it was fascinating to dig in on uh, regulations across the globe policies and looking at the impact that that had on geopolitical issues, uh, the reality of uh, nuclear impact, both positive and negative, and what changes could be made and how we could convince others to make those changes. So is this a, it, was it kind of an advocacy role or was it a educational role? How would you sort of characterize the, um, the role of the, the organization that you were part of? Kind of threefold. Uh, research so that we could have a real accurate picture of both domestic and international issues and really how they fit together. And then taking that and using that education to then advocate for change. You know, many people hear the word nuclear and they automatically think of weapons or they might think of a reactor meltdown. But nuclear energy is a much broader set of issues. Uh, can you give us a general overview of some of the ways nuclear energy impacts our national security? There are so many, but I think right now some of the major ones are 
energy security, and part of that encompasses climate change. Uh, another one is what's happening in Ukraine with the Zaporizhia power plant. There are issues that have been speculated about there, but that now we're kind of seeing play out in reality. Uh, we've got uh, cybersecurity issues that are becoming more and more real. We've got disposal issues and waste issues. I mean, they're, those are all very real, very current things that we're looking at. So why don't we touch on just a couple of those? Let's. Um, you you mentioned climate change. How does how does energy security and the use of nuclear affect climate change? Well, at our current rate, there are people that love to dig into say solar, and you know, solar is going to save us. And solar is amazing; it does provide us, you know, with solid renewable energy source. But there are issues with that. And even though we have a rapid rate of expansion in the use of solar and our, our capabilities with what it can provide, at this rate, there is no way that we can reach our net zero greenhouse gas emissions goals by 2050. And most of the experts who've looked at the data, like really dug into the numbers, agree that the only way to do that is to incorporate nuclear. We have to have, a, I guess you could say, a diversified portfolio. So. If we are going to help change and turn the tide on our global issues when it comes to global war warming, we have to do that. And those issues directly impact our citizens and, you know, their security in their way of life here in the U.S. And so it's something that uh, our nation's leaders and global leaders are very much concerned about and having to look at. So then the next question would would obviously be just, you know, you, you see the public discourse on this. You know, they don't want storage. They don't want disposal in, in their area. I think the fear is that nuclear is unstable and dangerous. How would you respond to that? Actually, I love that question because there are a lot of ways to answer that. Uh, if you were to compare units of energy to deaths in the history of each type of energy, nuclear has the lowest death rate per unit of energy by far. Lower than solar, lower than water lower than wind, um, and by far significantly lower than, uh, say, coal, which is actually pretty scary if you're looking at uh, deaths per unit of energy. So right there, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. Um, as well, uh, if you look at uh, certain uh, occurrences in history that are quite scary, say Three Mile Island, the reality of that is that the radiation released from that event, uh, when they measured it, was less than a dental x-ray. So reality is very different than what media portrays, what Hollywood portrays. And those portrayals are scary enough that that's what takes over. And of course, we have Chernobyl, which really dominates how people view things. But what happened there would actually never have happened at that time anywhere else. They didn't even follow their own regulations, let alone international regulations, which were much stricter. So the longer we have nuclear energy, the safer it gets. And that continues to be true. The advancements in our technology and our waste disposal get better and better and better. You mentioned, you know, facility security and Ukraine. Can you give us a kind of a thumbnail sketch of what that issue is at this time? Yeah. So before Russia invaded Ukraine, we had never had a situation where we saw boots on the ground in the vicinity of a nuclear power plant. And there were speculations on what that might look like, what that would do. Um, but honestly, I don't know if anybody ever really imagined we'd see that. And that has very much played out the way people speculated it might. 
you have fighting in the vicinity of a plant. And I mean, you're kind of asking for disaster. And we've very much seen the up and down, you know, control over that plant. They have had backup generators go out, you know, that's scary. Even with reactors powered down, having to provide energy to make sure that the cooling system stays intact uh, has been a bit scary. And right now, the IAEA currently permanently has four people uh, staying there at all times, you know, kind of keeping track of the issues because they are very fluid and changing and not often in a good direction. Does that give credence, though, to those fears that we just talked about? I mean, if um, if there's a battle zone that's near a uh, solar field, you know, th- then there's not going to be a huge negative consequence of that. If there's a battle that trickles into the nuclear field, you know, the the results could be catastrophic. Does that give any credence to the critics that nuclear energy is, you know, somehow more dangerous than others? I mean, for sure, there there's fear. I mean, radiation is never awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, the level of impact wouldn't be a Chernobyl. Um, and we've developed ways of dealing with those situations that are a lot more effective. Uh, still not good. But honestly, you look at the effect of war in any situation, and there are catastrophic consequences. So not to downplay it, but I mean, because it's not great, Um, but still something that can be we have ways of mitigating it and um, and we're getting better. So it doesn't help the situation there and it's still not good. But so beyond the dangerousness and stability issue we've just talked about. Um, what what are other storage issues or or you know some of the other concerns that people might have about nuclear waste that's sort of unique to nuclear? Well, that looks scary, right? I mean, you've got material that's radioactive uh, for a very long time after, but it's also not what people think. If you were to take all of the radioactive material from the past fifty five years and stack it together. That material goes into the reactor as a solid, and it comes out as a solid. So you literally could stack it. And if you were to take all of that, it would fit on one football field 10 feet deep, 55 years. We have a system of storing that waste. It's a two-step system. And in all the years we've been doing it, we have really not had an instant incident with that material, even in transporting the waste. We have not in the history. Uh, I think we've had like 2,500 trips of, you know, where we're transporting waste to a disposal facility. So that's really not what people are thinking. I mean, I think people are imagining these vast spaces. The other thing is that we are currently only using 1% of the available energy in that material. Even after five years spent in a reactor, there is still 90% available energy. And there are countries who are recycling that so-called waste. In fact, there are scientists out there saying there's no actual waste. We just haven't figured out how to use the rest Mm. of the energy. We're not doing that in the U.S. yet. We're not recycling. Uh, But we do have advanced uh, reactors in development which would better use that material, use more of it. And just for our audience, when we're talking about this, the context is how much of our 
energy production comes from nuclear. So two numbers for you. Globally, we're still the largest uh, user of nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. We use 29% of the global mm-hmm. nuclear energy output. Our energy use uh, of nuclear in the U.S., 8% of our total energy use comes from nuclear. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So relatively small. And it's declining or has been declining over past years. Interesting. So you also mentioned with nuclear research facilities and plants, there's a there's a concern over cybersecurity. What what does that look like today compared to historically? Well, we are seeing cybersecurity issues across the board in many industries, and although nuclear energy facilities and research facilities are some of the most regulated, safeguarded uh, places. Uh, they are still very appealing to hackers because of what they could accomplish should they be successful. And you're talking about both state and non-state hackers. Correct. Um, we have seen an increase in that activity, and we do have a need to kind of step up our game, but we do have safeguards in place. As the technology develops, though, so do our regulations need to develop. Um, we just had... Uh, most recently, I think um, this last summer, there's a Russian hacker group called Cold River. I always wonder how they come up with these names, but uh, <laughs> they went after nuclear scientists at Brookhaven, Argonne, and Lawrence Livermore Laboratories uh, just this past summer. And they don't know if they were successful in getting what they were going for. Mm. So that's not that's a concern. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is alarming. We're talking about a foreign actor that is going after uh, those facilities. And one of the issues is if they gain the right access, they could use it to spoof our systems. Mm-hmm. And there are a variety of things that we could be uh, looking at as a result. Uh, even, you know, screwing up readings that look at radiation where we're looking at thinking, oh, we've got a meltdown. And that causes a chain of events that could open up our systems to vulnerabilities because our attention is focused on what's happening there or react we're reacting to something that looks like say Russia's doing and that's not good either I mean you're talking chaos and we have the same issues with our missile systems too so it's an issue we're having to address across the board. I know your class on nuclear issues was very popular. I can see why now. It's a whole range of fascinating issues here. What recommendations would you give to students that are interested in studying nuclear energy-related issues? Come take my class. (laughs) (laughs) Also, take a physics class. You know, look at some of the intro classes in our science departments just to have a broader understanding. I am not a scientist, uh, but there are so many opportunities that are STEM adjacent where we need minds that can have a basic understanding of some of the science, but then use their training that they're getting in national security to kind of bridge the gap and think through some of the issues from multiple directions, whether it be policy or regulation or just an idea that you can take to the science side and say, hey, we have a gap here. Would you guys be able to come up with a solution? Or I'm, am I off my rocker, right? Like someone who can think through issues on a broader scale, kind of top down. And there are a lot of opportunities for that. So just having a basic understanding so they even know where to look and see what is interesting. Great. Yeah. And I think it's one of the great things about our program here is I, I think we 
in almost all of our classes, we spend quite a bit of time working with the students to help them understand issues and then be able to address policy issues. And so it's, it's, it's great having you here and part of our program. Well, I love being here. Okay. This has been fascinating. We appreciate you taking the time to be here uh, with us and uh, hope to have you again on another episode of our podcast. I'd love to come back. This has been an episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guest has been Rachel Hutchings, Deputy Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. The views expressed on this show are those of the hosts or our guests and not necessarily Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Baxter Elwood, Ian McDonald, Joshua Coyman, and Kennedy Fitzpatrick, with audio production by Spencer Anderson and Thomas Rowe. The music was created and performed by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at iins.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. And please join us by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of In the Interest of National Security.